I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 19, Riddle Me This, Heraclitus of Ephesus. The philosopher Heraclitus, known in antiquity as Heraclitus the Obscure, stands out among pre-Socratic philosophers for several reasons. As you know, we have little surviving material from any of the pre-Socratics. This is true for Heraclitus as well. But what does survive of his thought is unique in the vexation it presents to interpreters. The whole thing is a riddle, and it's clearly meant to be a riddle. We know that he lived in the 6th century, late 6th century, maybe from around 535 or so into the 5th, so dying around 475 BCE. Very rough dates. But he thus predates Plato, which is why we cited him in an earlier episode as a key pre-Platonic witness to Pythagoras. And, as you recall, he didn't think very much of Pythagoras. Now, the other pre-Socratics take issue with each other on many points, but Heraclitus is different here, too. He is the first example of a type of philosopher later exemplified by the thought of Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher who thinks everyone else is stupid. Also like Nietzsche, he wrote a very particular kind of book, which seems, like Nietzsche's Zarathustra and many other works, to have been more of a collection of sharp, pithy, paradox-saturated epigrams than a narrative work of a more traditional sort. Now this is open to interpretation, and some argue based on the surviving fragments that Heraclitus's book, for we know that he wrote a book, and that it circulated pretty widely in the generations after his death, did have more of a narrative flow. But even so, too many of the fragments function as little one-liners for this to be an accident. He must have written philosophy as bon mot to some degree. Heraclitus's importance for Western esotericism has one direct component, wherein he had a really profound influence on Western thought, and after centuries of transmission on arts like alchemy. This is the dictum that nature loves to hide. This statement was pretty widely cited in antiquity. It seems to have been his most famous line, really. And it's transmitted through many later authors down to the modern day. And we'll talk about that later on. He also had some indirect and perhaps surprising oblique influences on Western esotericism. And we shall get into these as well. But even if his influence on subsequent esoteric traditions were limited to the line, nature loves to hide, we'd still want to do an episode on him. As he's fascinating, he's bizarre, and, well, he influenced Plato, which automatically means he's important for the history of esotericism in the West. So let's indulge ourselves in exploring a few of the details, just really just touching the surface of the thought of this fascinating man. It involves the mystery cults and the practice of riddling associated with those cults. It involves the idea of the union of opposites, the coincidentia oppositorum, which is an idea with a long esoteric afterlife. And it involves something more important than any of these, the mysterious and potent metaphysics of Logos. Here we'll be on truly fascinating ground, and what we have to say about Heraclitus may blow minds, so be warned. Fragment 45. You will not find out the limits of the soul by going, even if you travel over every way. So deep is its Logos. I should mention here that I'm using the convenient translations of Charles Kahn, for this episode, with one change, where Khan translated the word logos as account or report, 
I leave it as logos. We'll get to why I'm doing that in a bit. And I'll be giving the deals numbers of fragments as I go along, in case you want to go check out the provenance of the original Greek on any of these. Remember, these are all quoted in later authors. So sometimes you need to look who's quoting what, when, and what their agenda is in order to interpret given fragments of Heraclitus or other philosophers. So first of all, let's talk about the mysteries. So far, we've been looking at Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans in our consideration of early philosophy. And we've seen an interesting adoption and transformation of cultural elements, which we know were present in the mystery cults, to this new phenomenon, philosophy or proto-philosophy or whatever we want to call it. Early philosophy in Italy was very interlinked with mystic ideas and practice. Now, Heraclitus is from Ephesus, a Greek city in the Achaemenid Empire, um, so on the Ionian coast of modern-day Turkey, which was within the Persian realm at the time. So he's not an Italian, he's a proper Ionian, like Thales, Anaximander, and the whole first wave of pre-Socratic philosophers, although he's of a later generation. But Heraclitus also uses the mysteries in his own way, as in all things, his own way is totally unique to him. So first of all, Heraclitus is really critical of the mysteries as they're practiced. He tells us in fragment 40 that the mysteries current among men initiate them into impiety. So this is interesting. Not a rejection of initiation, but a rejection of a perverted, impious initiation. Actually, it turns out that not only the mysteries are impious, but humans in general for Heraclitus, are stupid, sleepwalking through life, and other philosophers are con men, as we saw in the case of Pythagoras, and basically everyone is a fool, except maybe for children. So Heraclitus is clearly pretty wise. He's got the main thing right, that everyone's stupid. The only thing we don't have him saying is the Socratic final step of true wisdom, admitting that he is also stupid. Heraclitus never makes that step. He clearly doesn't think he's stupid. But let's get back to the mysteries. This one fragment isn't much to go on, but we should note that the initiation is described as impious, unholy. We should also note here that the phrase ta nomis domina cat anthropus mysteria, which Kant translates as the mysteries current among men, could also be translated that which men consider to be mysteries. In other words, not the true mysteries. But by either translation, Heraclitus is not rejecting initiations, but rather rejecting the initiations as they are commonly practiced. And he's not denying that the holy exists, or the gods, merely that it isn't found where people think it is. Now, another thing which is really interesting in this context is Heraclitus's love of opposites, and specifically of pairs of opposites set together to form a kind of paradoxical unity. Let's have a quick look at some more examples. Fragment 62. Immortals are mortal, mortals immortal, living the other's death, dead in the other's life. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. And we have fragment 88. The same, living and dead, and the waking and the sleeping, and young and old. For these transposed are those and those transposed again are these. So we see a unity of opposites, but also a sense that they're changing into one another. They're being transposed. They're being kind of, there's a metamorphosis of some kind going on. Let's look at one more, fragment 10. Graspings. Holes and not holes. Convergent 
divergent, consonant, dissonant. From all things, one. From one thing, all. Now there's a lot going on here. Heraclitus seems to have believed, for one thing, that everything arises from a kind of internal tension between opposing forces, and that the universe is truly dynamic, with everything a kind of highly strung tension between internal forces and opposition. But what I wanted to point out here is firstly that these kinds of paired opposites we've already encountered. They're sometimes found in inscriptions associated with mystery cults. We see the words life, death, life in the context of burial ceremonies, for example. And we should return to this type of material when we discuss Orphism. We also have the evidence of the Pythagorean table of opposites from Aristotle, which we've unfortunately not had time to cover in our basic introduction to Pythagoras. So we'll cover it now. This is a group of ten pairs of opposites given by Aristotle in his Metaphysics. He tells us that some of the Pythagoreans believe that numbers are the universal principles, but others believe they are opposites. These are limit and unlimited, which we saw in our discussion of Philolaus, odd and even, one and many, right and left, male and female, resting and moving, straight and curved, light and darkness, good and bad, square and oblong. Now, I don't think this is all accidental. My feeling, and this is not provable, is that mystic lore, which we know sometimes to have involved a play of opposites put in opposition suggesting some unity or mutual transformation one into the other, like the life-death-life constellation, is being seized upon by both philosophic approaches as a genuine source of knowledge about how the universe works. Heraclitus and the Pythagoreans are no doubt doing very, very different things with their mystic opposites, but I suspect a common cultural source here, not that I can prove anything. But while we're on the subject of the mysteries, we should mention that the riddle often features in mystic teachings as well. Greek oracles were often riddling too, as is well known. So in two divine institutions, the mysteries and the oracles, we have the riddle as a very prominent feature of teaching. In fact, we shall be devoting a whole episode to the fascinating term enigma in the weeks to come. This is where we get the English word enigma from, of course, but when we explore the semantic richness of this term in Greek, enigma just doesn't even begin to do it justice. But riddle is certainly one of the meanings of enigma. And we can see from these lines just quoted why Heraclitus was called the riddling or the enigmatic philosopher in antiquity. Not only what little we know of riddles associated with the mysteries, but oracular literature from antiquity and traditional riddle lore from all over Europe and probably from all over the world, often hinges on a seeming contradiction or even a juxtaposition of opposites for its effect. And remember, according to Heraclitus, the god at Delphi, that's Apollo, Delphi being the, the most prominent and famous of all the oracles in the Greek world, the god at Delphi neither speaks nor hides, but gives a sign or signifies. That's another one to contemplate. This riddling quality and the paradoxical union of opposites appearing in so many of the fragments of Heraclitus point us in many fascinating directions. Sometimes he seems to be making a simple point in the statements, the way up is the way down, for example, another famous Heraclitean paradox. He's often taken simply to be pointing out that things depend on perspective. The same road is the road up or the road down, depending on which direction you're walking, right? So if you're walking up the hill, it's the road up. When you come back down again, it's the road down, but it's the same road. Isn't that interesting? But that rather 
facile interpretation doesn't seem to work so well with fragments like fragment 10 that we've seen, graspings, holes and not holes. That's holes as in complete things, not holes like holes in the ground. Holes and not holes, convergent, divergent, consonant, dissonant, from all things one, from one thing all. And we note here as well that Heraclitus's unity of opposites really is a unity. From all things one, from one thing all, has a monistic ring to it, though clearly not some kind of static monism where nothing ever changes, like there is only one reality and it's eternal and doesn't change. But Heraclitus does tell us here that despite the tension of all the opposing forces at the heart of his thought, there is in some sense a unity of all things. And that brings us to our next subject, Logos. Fragment 50 tells us, It is wise, listening not to me, but to the Logos, to agree that all things are one. Now let's talk about this Greek word Logos here for a minute. It's a doozy of a word. Many will recognize it from its Christian context, where at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we have the famous lines, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. En arche en hologos kai hologos en proston theon kai theos en hologos. We're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but you'll see why I picked that example in a minute. Now, logos in our period, in the early classical period, can mean a number of things. It can mean speech or a given instance of speech. It can mean an opinion, an account of something, like an explanation. So you can give a logos of something by explaining it. A reckoning, including in the sense of a price or a calculation in mathematics. And it comes by extension to mean reason in the classical period, as in rational. Something that is alogon is illogical or impossible. So we see this meaning of logos coming into our word logic, right? The one thing it never means in ancient Greek of the classical period is word. It's very common to say that the root meaning of logos is word, and it is indeed related to the verb lego, to say, but the only way, in my opinion, that you could translate it as word would be if someone opened their mouth to give a logos, a speech or an account or an explanation, and it happened to consist of a single word, like they were some you know, some Buddhist crazy wisdom teacher or something like that. So I'm going out on a limb here and saying that Logos just doesn't ever mean word in the classical period, despite what everyone says. So what's up with the King James translation of the book of John? Well, we'll come back to that. So I mentioned that I've taken Khan's translation of Heraclitus and used them, except leaving the word Logos and translated. Why am I doing that? Well, there's a reason, but first let's get a few more tastes of Heraclitian Logos. In fragment 108, we have, Of all those whose Logoi I have heard, none has gone so far as this, to recognize what is wise, set apart from all. So here we have more people being stupid. Heraclitus has listened to their Logoi, their accounts, but he wasn't impressed. It's unclear whether it's not a single Logos which has attained to wisdom, set apart from all, or not a single person with a Logos, but either way, everyone is stupid. Whatever this wisdom is, it's interesting how Heraclitus sets it apart from all, somehow a contained single wisdom, not something one finds a bit of here, a bit of there. Maybe this is referring to his book, his Logos, but it's unclear. We can compare fragment two. The Logos is shared 
but men live as though their thinking is a private possession. That, that's a paraphrase. So there's this common logos, presumably some kind of wisdom or account or truth about reality. And it's the same for everyone, but everyone pretends that their thinking is a kind of individual subjective thing. And we should add fragment one, which many take to be the opening lines of Heraclitus's book. Although this logos holds forever, men ever fail to comprehend, both before hearing it and once they have heard. Although all things come to pass in accordance with this logos, men are like the untried when they try such words and works, as I set forth, distinguishing each according to its nature and telling how it is. But other men are oblivious of what they do awake, just as they are forgetful of what they do asleep. So we have opposites here. We have the tried and the untried, the awake asleep. But the logos, which is unknown, it's a secret. It is the truth contained both in words and in works. And that's very interesting and mysterious if you think about it. Men are like the untried when they try such words and works as I set forth. So whatever Heraclitus is telling us about, it's not simply words. It's not just concepts. It has to do with practical action somehow as well. But let's turn to two more fragments about Logos. 115 tells us, To the soul belongs a Logos that increases itself. And lastly, the line we quoted earlier, fragment 45, You'll not find out the limits of the soul by going, even if you travel over every way. So deep is its Logos. So, our evidence points to what Khan does here. He translates Logos in a totally unmetaphysical way. It's an account, a report. In the book of John, we saw that the Logos has become something very metaphysical. It's actually taken to refer to Jesus as the deity and as dwelling alongside the deity at the same time. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, how do you get from a kind of account or maybe rational understanding to a metaphysical principle, some kind of Godhead? How and aficionados of esotericism will be paying strict attention at this point. How, I ask, do we get from an act of externalized thought or cognition, that is speech, the expressing of a concept or an explanation, to an act of being, of existence? How do words relate to reality? Well, this is a very intimate and esoteric relationship. As we've seen in our introductory episode on magic, words were identified as magical in some of our earliest texts where the term magos and magea appears. Incantations are songs with words. Spells are made up of words. But divine words, that is either words that the gods themselves say or words given by the gods to men, these kind of words often have an intrinsic metaphysical power all their own. And in the Abrahamic traditions, of course, God creates by speaking. But as far as we know, this metaphysical extension of Logos simply doesn't exist in Heraclitus's time. It's the invention of later ages. That was clear with the everyone else's Logos falls short of wisdom quote we saw earlier. But let's check out these two again. 115, to the soul belongs a Logos that increases itself. And 45, you will not find out the limits of the soul by going, even if you travel over every way, so deep is its Logos. Now, doesn't it kind of seem like Heraclitus is doing something a little bit metaphysical here? Like the logos of the soul is some kind of inner principle of soul? Well, 
let's be careful and say, no, that's not what he's doing. The scholars are probably right not to see this kind of substantized logos in this early Greek philosophy. But, and this is a crucial but, the idea of the metaphysical logos does arise in later Greek thought, and it's especially prominent in Stoicism. Now, who are the Stoics? We'll be getting expert help later to answer that question. But we should say here that the Stoics were a later Hellenistic school of philosophy who believed in an all-pervading divine principle filling the universe, which was identified as Logos. The Logos Spermatikos, the seed reason, or inherent rational principle, is inside each thing, making it what it is. A bit like if you imagine that everything has DNA, even rocks and clouds and rivers and stars, and this inner DNA, the Logos, is what makes them become what they are. This is the Logos, it's everywhere, and it's God. So the Stoics are the school who answer that question we asked earlier, how do you get from rational account to metaphysical principle? Well, they provide part of the answer. But crucially, the Stoics totally dug Heraclitus. So it would seem that the Stoics read Heraclitus as if his concept of logos really were something a bit more than an account or even a rational account. It was for them an indwelling principle giving form and order to the cosmos. Word become reality. Rational account becoming rational indwelling principle. The story of the evolution of logos in Western esotericism really is one of the leitmotifs of our story. We're not just talking about a term here, the word logos. We're looking at a whole way of seeing the world which sees a link, sometimes a fundamental metaphysical link, between utterance and cognition and the rational ideas lying behind utterances and realities themselves. Platonism, Kabbalah, Islamic letterism, esoteric theories of language in all their splendor will be under discussion in this podcast. So I think Heraclitus is a very fascinating figure that we should pay attention to because somehow he seems to be adumbrating or maybe on the cusp of this new and potent conception of language or reason or the power of the human being to give an account of reality as somehow being constitutive of reality, somehow forming, creating reality. Now this is going to explode with Plato and in a different way with the Stoics. And once the two, Stoicism and Platonism, become combined in the late antique esoteric synthesis, all bets are off. And we have the truly esoteric realism. And by realism, I mean the philosophical concept that words are not simply arbitrary signs that point to realities, but somehow are intrinsically connected to realities themselves. You will not find out the limits of the soul by going, even if you travel over every way. So deep is its logos. Now, having indulged in a bit of a logos drunk excursus on words and things, and how they might really be the same thing, or is that the same word? And that reminds me, how does that word translation in the King James Bible come about? That, gentle listener, is a story for another episode. Haha. -ha. But moving on from logos and the rather impressionistic picture I'm painting of the development of this key concept and moving back toward the solid ground of philologically sound interpretation, we should very briefly discuss Heraclitus's greatest indisputable direct contribution to Western thought. Fragment 123. Fusis cruptis thai phile. 
nature loves to hide. This I take to be Heraclitus's most quoted statement. Loads of ancient authors cite it. But what does it mean? Well, maybe ironically, a relatively easy one to decipher. The true nature of things is not apparent. It is occult, esoteric, secret. And the term physis, nature, refers specifically in the context in which Heraclitus is working to the world around us, to what we nowadays call the realm of the physical sciences, right? The world. So we're looking at here what I take to be the original philosophic statement of an idea which reoccurs again and again in philosophy, science, literature, and thought. That things are not what they seem, that the true properties of reality are occult properties. And it turns out Heraclitus was bang on the money. Everything modern physics tells us about the world is in total contradiction to what our senses and our common sense tell us about what the world is like. So Heraclitus ahead of his time with this statement. For those wishing to explore the later history of this wonderful, pithy little three-word phrase of Heraclitus, I highly recommend the study by Pierre Adot mentioned in the notes to this episode. The Veil of Isis, it's called in English. It's a long historical meditation on the idea of nature from antiquity onward, sort of circling around this quote from Heraclitus. As with all of Pierre Adot's books, it's well worth reading. It's a wonderful, mature reflection of his thoughts on a lifetime of reading Western philosophy and grappling with esoteric thought. So be sure to check that one out. But for now, we're out of time. The Logos has run its course, and it's time to move on, or we'll be plumbing its depths forever. So deep is its Logos. So until next time, take a leaf out of nature's book and stay esoteric. 